Does anybody remember where we are at this evening? Revelation. Revelation. All right. So we looked at the seven churches out of Revelation 2 and 3 last week. And then I said that we were going to divide it up and we were going to look at the seven churches last week and then look at the rest of the Revelation as given to John this week. So, if you're there in Revelation uh, chapter 3 or chapter 4, you see where Revelation 3 ends and we have um, the last letter to the last church. Revelation 4 opens up and John is being given a vision of heaven and a scroll. And then starting in Revelation chapter 5, there starts to be the unfolding of the scroll. Now this is where we get into um, some debate, maybe some difference of opinion even in the room having to do with after you get past Revelation chapter 3 and you see the seven churches, then from Revelation 4 all the way through Revelation um, Revelation 20, Revelation 19, the question is, is who is the focus or who are the people at the center of the narrative, if you will? So there's a couple of different options. Um, One option would be that the people that are being impacted, the people that are being affected by the things that we read about in Revelation 4 all the way through Revelation 19, one of the options is, is that the people are lost people. That's one option. Another option would be that the people are all the Gentiles and all the non-Jews, and this is something that is happening to them. Another option could be that this is all of humanity, just whoever was there during that season or that period of time when these things begin to take place. The other view that where I hold to, and this is my opinion, um, and you're happy to have a different opinion, we're happy to go back and forth on opinions. This is not something that, to me, is something worth breaking fellowship over. But my view and my opinion is that from Revelation 4 through Revelation 19, the main focus that is in view are the Jewish people. It is the nation of Israel. It is the Jewish people that are in view. Now you say, well, Spence, why do you have that position? Well, um, I'm going to show you uh, Romans chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4. I just want to reference these passages to try to give you an explanation of where I'm at and why I, why I consider this. So when you start in Revelation 4, what you will see is you will see seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath being poured out in judgment upon the people that are on the earth. And so through all three of those sevens, if you will, we see destruction, we see death, we see the wrath of God being expressed towards the people that are on the face of the earth. So why do I think those are the Jews and that is not um, us? Now, let let me maybe... It's not just Jews, there's Jews and Gentiles. But when that begins, the church is gone. And what I mean by the church, I mean all the redeemed from all the ages. We are not there at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6. I, I, I'm sorry, that was not very clear. So when Revelation 6 started starts, it will be the unsaved Jews and the unsaved Gentiles, the church, the redeemed, the saved, we will be gone. Why do I say that? 
Romans chapter 3. And verse 23 is a very famous passage. You know Paul is writing. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But then verse 25, he says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the just justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when I read that, the way that I take that and the way that I walk away from that is when Christ died on the cross, He took my wrath. He took my penalty. He took my judgment that I was due for my sin. So when you look at Revelation 6 through Revelation 19, the wrath and the judgment that God is pouring out on creation, I am not subject to because my price was paid by Jesus on the cross. So the, pet, the wrath, the penalty are for those that have rebelled, those that have denied who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, because for those that are saved, for those of us that are in Christ, we now have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So that wrath, that judgment that we see starting in chapter 6 of Revelation and on, that are people, that is reserved for people who are not in Christ. So where do we fit? Where, do, where, where does this fit that then in the timeline, Spence? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15 and ver, in chapter or 1 Corinthians 15 and starting in verse 50, Paul is writing about this resurrection. So where I'm at, you have the first coming of Christ, the incarnation. He died, or not, he died on the cross, rose again, ascended back to the right hand of the Father. We have a second coming of Christ, and this will be um, in Revelation chapter 19. But in the first coming and the second coming, there is what um, we call the rapture. What is the rapture? What I hold to, and what I, and I'm not alone in this, so don't think, well, this is some kooky idea. And there is, there's plenty of people that have this idea. But there's a rapture where Christ appears in the clouds. All of the church, all of those that are in the church, all of those that are in Christ are then raptured to heaven, and they are raptured to God. And then when the rapture happens, that starts a seven years of tribulation if you will. And that is where we see those those uh, seals, those trumpets, and those bowls being poured out. So let me give you uh, uh, what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So then he goes on to talk about that we will not, that that sting of death, and that penalty, and that judgment that we uh, deserve for our sins, Christ has paid for it. So now, therefore, we have a different standing in in the eyes of God because he sees the righteousness of God or the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Another passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says in verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For 
since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So where I come to Scripture at is that you have the church, those that have been redeemed through this, what we call a church age, Christ is going to appear in the clouds. He will rapture the church to Him, to heaven. And then when that happens, you have the seven years of tribulation that then take place as predicted by Daniel and as seen here in Revelation chapter 6 and following. Now that's where I'm at. If you have a different opinion, you're like, no Spence, no Spence. We, we are here in Revelation 6 through 19. That's your prerogative. Me, I don't think I go through that wrath and through that judgment and through all of those penalties because Christ has paid my penalty for me. Does that make sense? Makes sense. I mean, you don't have to agree with me, but I just, that's where I am at. So when I come in to Revelation 4, um, picks up the throne in heaven. Revelation 5 is the scroll and the lamb where Christ is portrayed as the, uh, the lamb that comes to open the, open the seals. And so when this thing starts and we start seeing these things, you will have some people interpret this and say, well, this is what we are going to face. I don't think that's what we face. I think for those that are in Christ, we are in heaven. And these things are happening to those that have rejected Jesus Christ. When that church age leaves, then those seven years of tribulation begin. And then this is where people see the wrath and the judgment of God poured out upon creation. So, Revelation chapter 6, it has this heading about the seven seals. Now, for the sake of time, we can't um, cover verse by verse, word by word, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 22. So I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights and point out some key things that you would be welcome to go back and look at. Revelation 6 talks about the seven seals. And every time a seal opens up, every time a, a new revelation is had, some other level of destruction, some other level of wrath is poured out. You get to chapter 7, and we're right in here between the 6th and the 7th seal, and you get to chapter 7, and it talks about the 144. And if you look, the 144 are those of the 12 tribes of Jacob, the original Jewish nation, if you will. And so they say, we're going to seal these 144, and they will be kept, they will be preserved. But again, the people that are in view are not only the Gentiles that rejected Christ, but primarily God's point through this seven years of tribulation is to get a hold of the Jews' attention. Christ came. Orthodox Judaism denied that that was the Messiah. They denied that Jesus was the Savior of the world, and they've rejected Him. And now for 2,000 plus years, they have denied that Jesus was the Christ. So now, what is in focus here, the Gentiles have had all of their opportunity to come through Christ through what we're calling the church age. Now, this is the, oppor- this is the point where God comes in to get a hold of the Jewish nation to say, I am God, you miss Jesus, you need to repent and turn to me. 
So, you have the seven seals that are opened up. That's six, then seven, and then chapter eight. And then, midway through chapter eight, starts seven trumpets. And all of these start to represent different levels of torment. Different levels of judgment. Different levels of things that are coming upon people. And you, you and I may read that. And we may look at some of this stuff and go, how in the world is this stuff taking place? How in the world is all of this happening? So let's say, for instance, um, um, pick it up in chapter 9 and verse 7. Just listen to this. In the appearance... The locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wing was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abdodon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. It's the idea that you and I think, well, how in the world can this happen? And we have a hard time sometimes imagining, conceiving of what this looks like. But there was like a, a, a locust that looks like a horse with a tail that stings people like a scorpion. For five months, they go around stinging people, bringing torment upon people, just making life and life, like just making agony and misery out of people's lives. Verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they are wounded. So the imagery that John is seeing this revelation of what is taking place right in the middle of this wrath of God being poured out. He says there, um, verse nine, verse eighteen, that a third of mankind is killed. You see, in some of these other places where just carnage and death are coming, but then you see a place like chapter nine and verse twenty. It says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So if you start reading in Revelation chapter 6 and you get to the end of 9 and you're just like, Oh my gracious, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the death and the destruction. I can't imagine the carnage that is there. You know, the, to me, I, I liken it to um, when you see imageries, when you see movies, or you see pictures, or you hear people describe um, Vietnam, and when the napalm was unleashed upon the population, and the burning effect that it had on the population. Or when you think about the radiation poisoning during World War II, and then you have the individuals, the, the Japanese citizens, and the effect that the radiation poisoning was having on them. I was listening to an interview just this last week, and there was a young lady that had escaped from North Korea and is now living in the United States, and her describing that some of the prisoners that are taken captive in North Korea are being used to clean up the radioactive waste there in North Korea because they're considered to be in they're considered to be disposable, but they're having people that are having to go in there knowing they are going to kill themselves by radiation poisoning and the effect that that has on them. It's hard for you and I to grasp the degree of suffering 
and the degree of maim, the degree of the carnage that is there. And so we see this in Revelation, and we see these things taking place, and, and I don't know if you're like me, but at some point you're like, okay, so maybe at some point they're going to be like, alright God, you win, we were wrong, we're sorry, we repent. And Revelation 9 says, no. They see the power of God, they see the wrath of God, they see the judgment of God, they see the vengeance of God towards sin, and they see the consequence of their sin, and yet they do not turn away. They do not repent, it says, and they do not give up portioning the demons or the idols. And for me, I sit there and I think, how can you be so dense? And then I think about all the times, (laughs) but all the times God says no, And I say, well, you really didn't mean that. (laughs) And all the times God says, play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. All the times I look at God and I say, poor pitiful me, and God said, I told you so. I mean, you think about all the times we are the same kind of people. So, you get there to the end of Revelation 9, and you see these seven scrolls that are being opened up. Then you get to Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses, and that's a, that's a story maybe for another day where we have more time. Revelation 12 talks about the woman and the dragon. Talk about Satan being thrown down. This is Revelation chapter 12. And then you get to Revelation 16, and now we see the seven bowls. So we saw the seven seals, we saw the seven trumpets and now we see the seven bowls and it's like we're ratcheting up God saying, here I am and this is the way I think about it is I look at that little sweet um, sinful two year old that's in my house and I look at him and I say, don't do that and he keeps doing that, and then I say don't do that, and he keeps doing it, and then I say, don't do that, and then he keeps doing that and then his mama comes in, Michael Warren and he's like, oh, okay, never mind never mind, okay, alright, so Sometimes you gotta ratchet it up, right? Sometimes you kinda you you, you gotta you, you change the way you communicate every single time. So that's what I think about when I come here in Revelation is God is like, Don't do that. <laughs> Turn to me. Don't do that. Turn to me. Hello, are you listening? I'm trying to get your attention. Because you get there to Revelation chapter 16, and this just seems mind-boggling. First one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out, went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. God is showing His power. God is showing His authority. God is showing His wrath and His judgment, and these people are saying, Verse 10, the fifth angel Poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People 
gnawed, gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bolt on the great river Euphrates and its waters was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle for the great day of the Almighty. So you see these six bowls being poured out in every single one of them. You are seeing the wrath of God being poured out on creation for people's rejection of Christ and these people continue to turn away from Him. And that is where I think my personal opinion, we're not there. Those that are in Christ, we're not there. These are on the people. Primarily the focus is the Jews, but there's also Gentiles there. And those people that are there, God is trying to get their attention. Do you understand who I am? Now, is there opportunity during this time for people to repent and turn to God? Yes. Yes, there is. Do I think that God is using this as a last means effort to say time is getting short? Yes. Do I think that it will be incredibly difficult for people to turn to God during this time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because everybody that was in Christ are now gone. So that spiritual influence, that spiritual light, those people that might be willing to tell you about Jesus and talk about Jesus, those people are gone. Is now, the Holy Spirit gone too? I could say both ways. Yeah. So we have the, the we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. So we know we have the Holy Spirit there, and we also know that we have the Holy Spirit is not just confined to believers. I do not know if God is not going to be drawing people to Himself during that time. I know that He's using that as a time to alarm people and to show His wrath and to show His judgment on humanity. Um, I don't know. I don't know if if they're there or not. But we do know that God is trying to get their attention. And they keep turning around and going, no. So I think Satan is active. I think Satan's active on the on the face of the earth. And I think his demons are active. Um, I would go back and when it talks about the fall of Babylon and talks about the great prostitute, um, there is, I don't think it's necessarily identifying Satan specifically. I think it's identifying um, demonic works, demonic oppression. I think there's demonic activity um, running amok. Um, I think that there's a certain amount of spiritual warfare that is being held at bay to some degree because of the influence of Christians today. And I think that you take the the influence and the effect of Christianity and God's people out of the mix and then we have chaos, anarchy, and immorality like we could not even dream about taking place today. I mean, just consider if in 2023 if there were not people that valued the sanctity of your human life what would be the state of our society now? No life would be sacred at any stage of life. And that's just a, a small little snippet of where we are at. I mean, I know there's, there's movies that are out there about just the uh, uh, suffering. Um, that, that one interview with the North Korean lady, she was talking about that in North Korea, um, when you're in some of these prison camps and some of these work camps, if they kill you, there's no judgment. There's no, there's no retribution. If, 
if you're there and uh, I get put into a prison camp and Pete is in charge of this certain prison camp and if I don't do what I told, Pete... Pete can kill me, he can whoop me, he can do whatever he wants, and there is no retribution that happens to him because I'm considered to be a nothing in the eyes of the communism, in the eyes of the North Korean dictatorship, and all that stuff. She said that there is no value of life, period. Now, what is holding that value today? I would argue that it is Christianity. And it's God's people saying God's word says that life matters because God says it matters because God created life. So I think that Satan is at work. I think that Satan is uh, having a field day, if you will. But then you get to Revelation 19. This is where the cool stuff happens. So you say, all right, Spence. So, so you say, Revelation 4 and 5, the rapture is taking place somewhere in that timeline. That's where I'm at. So then what are we doing? Where are we at then while Revelation 7 all the way through Revelation 18 is taking place? Well, we are in heaven. Well, what are we doing in heaven? Well, we're having the marriage supper of the Lamb. What in the world is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, all I can tell you is what the Bible says about it. Revelation 19 and verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters... And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now this is where I come in and I say because we are in Christ, we are now part of the Big C Church. And what is the Big C Church identified in Scripture as? The Bride of Christ. Okay, So in the Jewish traditions and the Jewish customs, when the, uh, husband and the, the, the husband and the wife would come together, there was always a festival, there was always a feast, and there was always a marriage supper, if you will, that they had uh, come together, they had exchanged the vows, they had gone through the ceremony, and now they're going to have a big, big dinner banquet before that first night of them being married. We do the same thing now, where a lot of times after marriage ceremonies, we'll have a reception. Sometimes they will have a meal, but it's the time where we celebrate, and the time that we really enjoy and saying, okay, the marriage has happened and now let's celebrate this new wedding. Well, here in Revelation 19, we see that we have Christ, who's the groom, right? And then we have the church, who is the bride, and they are coming together in a symbolic marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, will we sit down and eat? I don't know if we'll eat or not. What will be the menu? I don't know. Maybe it'll be lamb. Maybe it'll be the same thing we had for the same dinner. I, I don't know. I don't know. The whole idea is, what's really cool is, is that Christ will be there, the church will be there, and if I'm in Christ, I will be there, and where will I not be is I won't be down here with all the wrath and all the judgment and all the destruction and all the hatefulness and the pain and the suffering because I will be in heaven with Christ. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. First church I went to serve as a pastor at... (laughs) And the reason I wasn't there for very long, I think. (laughs) And I didn't know about it until I was already there. But they had a view that the marriage step of the Lamb 
that the only people that would be allowed to sit at the marriage supper at the table, only people that allowed to be allowed to sit at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb were landmark missionary Baptists. Other people that are still Christians, you will be there too, but you will be standing against the wall or outside licking in through the windows while landmark missionary Baptists are sitting at the table enjoying supper. Everybody else will be standing on the peripheral. Or they read it I don't know. That's probably why I wasn't there very long. So it was, but it, they had this mentality. They had this mentality. The Mary of the Lamb that all of saved will be there, but only the pure church will be at the table. I don't have a chapter and verse to say that. And you know what? I'm not really going to spend a lot of time kind of trying to think about, well, you know, will Ben be at the table? Or will I be at the table? Or will Ben be sitting closer to Jesus than I will be? Who gives? Who cares? I'm going to be with Jesus and I'm going to be in Christ and I'm going to be at the marriage supper going hallelujah. Right? And I'm going to be all excited because I'm going to know that all this stuff's happening down there and I'm not there because I got my mind right with Jesus before all of this stuff came about. Okay? So you have the marriage supper lamp. So that is what's going on after supper. This is where it gets cool. Revelation 19. It says in verse 11, Now John is still writing. John is seeing this vision. John is seeing this stuff saying, and this is God showing John. Okay, John, these are the things that are coming. Now we don't have a time of the day. We don't have a calendar. And uh, there's always things that we're like, well, I wish you'd give him more detail here. I wish you'd give more information there. We don't know. But God is giving John information saying these things are coming. So verse 11, this is when we see the second coming of Christ. The second coming, earthly coming. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and he is, um, and, and, by the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him a white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what happens? Jesus gets done with supper, just figuratively. He gets done with supper. He said, alright, God says, it's time. He gets on the right horse. And as he comes into the atmosphere and into the skies, he's coming riding on this white horse. And with him are who? It says, where is it at? Where is it at? Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. So this is what I think. This is what I think. I think that when he comes riding on the white horse, the entire big C church, we are following him. We are flanking Jesus Christ as he comes. Why? Because he needs our help? No. No, no, no. He doesn't, he doesn't need us. He, he, he's not like, hey, I need backup. Okay, we're not, we're not archers and, and spearmen, okay? We are coming. We are coming so that we can witness the power of Christ. We are coming because God has promised us that he will, he will defeat death and he will defeat 
sent. We are coming as witnesses. And so we see this rider on the right horse. He comes and he appears in the clouds. And, and this is my opinion. We have all the big C church. We have flank, we are flanking him as he comes. We are not going to be active. We're just going to be there going rah, rah, rah. Get him, get him, get him. And it says that in chapter 20, he comes and he gets Satan and he throws him to the bottomless pit. And you see there in chapter 20 and verse 7, you see the defeat of Satan. So Christ comes, he binds Satan, he defeats Satan, and he puts him in the bottomless pit. For how long? Thousand years. Now, you will have different people that have different ideas about this thousand years. And you can break them up in three categories. You have pre-millennial, you have post-millennial, and you have all-millennial. And that's just how they see this thousand years and where it plays out in um, the big fancy word is called eschatology. It's the study of last things. And so you'll have people that have different opinions of where they're at. This is where I am at. I am a pre-trib. That means that the church is raptured home before the tribulation. I am a pre-millennial, meaning that the seven years of tribulation happens before the millennial reign. So I'm pre-trib and pre-mill would be the way that the lingo is the way that they would talk about it, okay? But people have different opinions, and there are a lot of people that I love and respect that have different ideas about the timing of all this, okay? There's some people that I have a lot of respect for that believe that everybody will go through the seven years of tribulation. And I'm like, well, that's great. That's great. That's not where I hold to it. And so we're all going to see what happens eventually, right? Okay? So it's all going to happen. And at the end of the story, we all know that regardless of whether we go through the seven years of tribulation or whether we're in the millennial reign right now, we know at the very end God wins and we spend an eternity with Him in heaven. So we know that that is the end point. So... Revelation 20, you have the thousand year reign, okay? So uh, Jesus comes there in chapter 19, verse 11, down through verse 21. He comes, he binds Satan, he casts Satan into the bottomless pit, he's there for a thousand years. This is chapter 20 now, verses 1 down through verse 6. That thousand years goes by, verse 7, Satan is released, there is one final battle, and after that final battle, then forever, I'm sorry, excuse me, forever and for eternity, then Satan is now thrown into hell and that will be an eternal judgment. So you look at chapter 20 and verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and on him who was seated on it and from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead, great and small, were standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's this final judgment that comes. And there is no more time. This is it. Every single person will spend an eternity in one of two places. Every single person. And the person, and the, and the person, if I can say that, the person that makes that determination of where you and I and every other human being on the face of this earth, the person that makes that decision is not you or me. The person that makes that decision is God. You know, there's a lot of times you and I will walk around and we may say, well, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. And we think about somebody else. Oh, they're a pretty good person. It doesn't matter whether you're a good person or you're a bad person. 
It doesn't matter if you're a rich person or a poor person. It doesn't matter if you're an educated person or an uneducated person. It doesn't matter if you're a nice person or a mean person. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about your experience. It doesn't matter about your knowledge. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you own a Bible. It doesn't matter if you have scripture memory, uh, scripture verses memorized. It doesn't matter. If you're lost, God knows you're lost. And you go, to, you go to a place like Matthew chapter 25, and, and there Jesus is talking about that there's a time coming, 2 Corinthians 5, um, 9 and 10 talk about this, but there's a Bema seat. And that even Jesus says there's that time coming that He will have both goats and sheep. The goats represent the lost, the sheep represents the saved. And He said there's a time coming that you'll have the goats and the sheep. And in that in Matthew 25 language, it is Christ. Christ is the one that says goat and sheep. Christ doesn't look at me and say, well, Spence, now what do you identify as? Christ doesn't look and go well let's take a vote do you think do you think that Wayne Webb is a goat or a sheep no we don't do that no when the time comes Jesus Christ and even God and and they're both part of that Godhead but both of them they're like no we know who you are and we know what you are and you have made the decision to be what you are and it's eternity Forever. Now, up until this point, up until this point, I lean towards the opinion that there's an opportunity for people to turn. Even during the seven years of tribulation, I think there's an opportunity for people to turn. Um, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of Jews that then realize, oh, we missed it. That was the Messiah. And they turn to God. There's going to be a time of purification. There's going to be a time of uh, just reckoning during that time. And I think there will also be other people that will say, you know, well, we missed it. Now, how are they going to handle the mark of the beast? And how are they going to handle the persecution that's going to come? It will be hell on earth. But all of that will then take place. But I, I lean towards that opinion that there is still that opportunity until we get to the end of Revelation 20. And then time is up. There is no more opportunity. And then, verse twenty or verse one of chapter twenty-one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." So the image that John is seeing is this new. This new earth. And it's, I think, it's similar to the very first earth that he created. It's the first earth that sin corrupted when Adam and Eve sinned. And it's the earth that before its brokenness came in through the effect of sin and the influence of Satan. I think this new earth and this new heaven is just this restored. Sin is now no more. Death has been removed. All of these things are gone. But you say, well, what will heaven be looking like? And you know, there's some, there's a couple places in Revelation where it talks about the streets of gold. And we have these ideas. You know how people talk about, oh man, when I get to heaven, all they're going to be is just 12 pound uh, largemouth bass in the pond. And oh, when I get to heaven, all I want to do is play golf and everything's going to be a part eight. And I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to be double eagles on all of them. I mean, sometimes we have ideas. Oh, when I get to heaven, uh, like for me personally, there's going to be Red Bull sugar free on tap. Fountains of Red Bull sugar free that's just going to be everywhere. And nobody's going to judge me for drinking Red Bull sugar free. And nobody's going to go, ooh, that's bad for you because I don't, I'm immortal. I'm good. All right. So, you know, you'll have people that will talk about what will heaven be like, right? And we always think about it in terms that we, our, our desires, our preferences, oh, there'll be streets of gold. 
I love you. Who cares about some of that stuff? Listen to how John describes it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We have never known perfect union with God. We've never known it. We were born in sin. We have lived in sin. We have never known the feeling of that pure relationship and fellowship with God. And so that's the first explanation he gives us. We will be with God and God will be with us. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You think about the things that cause us the most suffering and the most pain. Are those relationships, the death of loved ones. And he says, when there's with God... Who cares about the streets? Who cares about what you're going to drink? Who cares about all this? Will I be on a cloud? Will I have a harp? Will I have an auto harp? Will my harp be in tune? I don't know. Who? What does it matter? You know what? I'm going to be in heaven with God. And you know what? All these things that plague us and that give us so many fits and that burden our hearts and that bring us sorrow and sadness, it's gone. It's gone. All of those things. The dwelling place. He said, He will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall, neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, arthritis, sickness, infirmities, all of those things. Gone. The former things have passed away. He's saying, This is what it's going to look like with God. Complete happiness. Complete fellowship. Complete relationship. All the time. 24 7. So he says this is what is coming about. So beyond those other things, I I don't know. I just know there'll be all the things that are the effects of sin. And the reminders of sin. You know, when we have death, death is a reminder of sin. Death is a reminder of the brokenness that's in this world. The pain and the suffering reminds me that from the day that I was born, I've been dying. <laughs> and it reminds me that I'm mortal. It reminds me that I'm of the flesh. It reminds me that I am not perfect. It reminds me the consequences of decisions. There's so many things that are then wiped away in Revelation 21. And then, and then, he talks about the size, and this is the New Jerusalem, and this is chapter 21, and starting in verse 9, talks about the size and how big it is and how large it is. And there's people that, that will talk about and try to give you explanations about what this looks like. It's just going to be awesome, and it doesn't matter if it is 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches, or 12 miles by 12 miles by 12 miles, or 12 light years by 12 light years by 12 light years. God has it, and it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be awesome, and we're going to be there for an eternity. Chapter 22, verse 1. 
Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will be any accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever. It ever. So Revelation, we picked it up at in Revelation 4, starts with judgment and wrath. And God pours this out upon His creation. Revelation 19, Jesus comes back for His second coming. The church is with Him. A thousand year reign. But then when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, you see where God brings this restoration. And you see where those that are in Christ, then not... I know you can say rain. I know that's biblically correct. I don't need a rain. I just want to be present. I get to be present with God forever. And that, that concept, it says there in verse 5 of chapter 22, they will need no lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The idea of just being able to be there and thinking the glory of God the majesty of God. And I get to be present in that for an eternity. Hallelujah. So we might have different opinions. You might have, you might have a different way you slice it. When we get to Revelation, not only is John telling us what is yet to come, but I would hold that John is also saying this is what yet to come for those who reject Christ. And I think it's important because we have no idea about when the rapture will come. Matthew, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus is talking about towards the end of His earthly ministry, Jesus says it will be like a thief in the night. Nobody will know. It will be like one of the examples is two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other one will be left. Um, We have no idea when that time will come. We do know, based upon 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there will be the shout of the archangel. There will be the sound of the trumpet. And the church will... This is my opinion. This is my conviction. The church will then rise. You see 1 Corinthians 15, those that are dead in Christ, those who have been buried, they rise. The whole church goes up. And we are taken out. We have no idea when that comes. Now, we talk about the second coming, the rider on the right horse. I think, based on my understanding of Scripture, we can kind of date that after the rapture happens. So if you're on the earth and... All these people left, right? All these people are gone, and then you turn around and you're just like, ruff, ruff. <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. And you, th- you might think to yourself, well, okay, so what does this mean now? This means you got about seven years, seven years before Jesus comes back. And you're like, okay, well, I can hunker down, I can make it seven years. Good luck, because these bowls, these wrath, a third of these people die, a third of these people die, the water's below, the sky is dark, and hell coming down, the size of Volvos. I mean, just, it's. It's going to be crazy and it's going to be anarchy and it's going to be beat the mark of the beast and you can't buy or sell anything unless you have the mark. I mean, all that stuff happens and you say, well, then Spence, what do we do? <laughs> you get right with Jesus before it's too late. Amen. And then what do we tell those around us? The rapture's coming. Christ is coming. We don't know when. 
Well, that seems like a loaded question, Spence. We, we don't know when. And so that seems like it's just an open-ended thing. No, that's an opportunity. An open-ended opportunity to go tell people that this is going to happen and we want you to be ready for when this time happens. And so not only is there something for you and I to be excited about, there's also something for you and I to be on the move about and to be, a, to be motivated to tell other people about because we know that this is coming. We do not know when the rapture will take place. We do not know when this will happen as far as a calendar, but we know that it's coming. And we know that it's closer to happening today than it was yesterday. And even if you go, well, Spence, you know what? My great-great-grandfather, they thought the rapture would happen in their lifetime, and it didn't. You know, that's true. But you know what else happened to your great-great-grandfather? His life on this earth came to an end. He had an opportunity. Then your great-great-grandfather had an opportunity. And then your great-grandfather had an opportunity. And then your grandfather had an opportunity. And then your father had an opportunity. And now you have an opportunity. And now your son has an opportunity. And now your grandson has an opportunity. And your great-grandson. And if God keeps training, you have an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And so Revelation is a good reminder. We don't have to know all the answers. And we don't have to be able to explain all the different intricacies that are there. We can just say, what this tells us is that the time is coming. God has not forgotten about sin. And God has not forgotten about about Satan, and God has not forgotten about those that have rejected Jesus Christ. So we have an opportunity to be ready, to be excited, and to tell people about what is yet to come. Questions, ideas, thoughts, pushbacks, clarifications?